speaking of fear, I have a couple confessions, and I think I could get through my speech better if I just laid it out. One is, <clears throat> I don't totally feel comfortable speaking at a building like this, because I'm usually the person on the outside throwing pebbles at the, <laughs> at the glass, saying, did you really do that? <laughs> or being escorted in by uh, security guards to have the sort of final, you know, what do you say about this interview? Um, but I am glad to be here. And I think it speaks well of the United States of America that they will let people who criticize uh, the government also speak with the government. Um, the second thing is, you know, I've read your um, bios, and um, I don't see many journalists among you. And I, so I just want to tell you that um, I myself have never taken a journalism class. So needless to say, I didn't major in it. And so I consider you all recruitable. Uh, and that's part of what I'm going to try to do today. Um, journalists, I mean, what attracted me to it were, were two basic things. One is that you got to question authority, which I, my parents would say I'd been doing since age, you know, three. But also that you get to have a lot of fun. And I don't know, if you see a theme with the journalists here, we, we tend to gravitate towards fun. And I think that's, it's hugely important because after 20 years of doing this, I still can't believe I get paid for it. Although, you know, when, my, when I tell my bosses, I always say, can I get paid more for this? Um, but I've had a huge range of adventures in the 20 years that I've been working at the Washington Post. Um, you know, some that just stick out in my mind is going down into the bottoms, uh, bottom of a coal mine, watching the coal miners dig out um, dirty, sooty coal during a coal miner's strike, or riding in a helicopter doing a combat flight with special forces in Nigeria when we were this far above the ground and I was sitting up like this trying to make sure that if the you know, thing crashed I would um, somehow lift off. Um, <laughs> or traipsing around Europe trying to um, get spies to talk to me about secret prisons. That was one of the more challenging. Uh, traveling to Turkmenistan with uh, one of the four-star regional commanders who divide up the world and have their own foreign policy. Um, or snooping around Walter Reed, the grounds of Walter Reed for six months, which I did recently, trying to take notes about the lack of soldier care. And then just last week, I was up in the Bronx in a housing project, very dangerous place, interviewing a soldier who had helped to capture Saddam Hussein, who'd come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, and then had the army kick him out and tell him that, well, he had been uh, crazy before he joined the army, and before they re-enlisted him for a second tour. And now, not only was he trying to, to hang on to his sanity in what I think was one of the most difficult settings for anyone who wasn't mentally ill, but he also suffered from post-traumatic stress, and what he saw when he went to bed were were the children that he carried out of the homes that the bombs destroyed. And he has a four-year-old, and he couldn't stop dreaming about that. So um, I have done you know, interviews of the power elite in Washington, but what I really like to do, which goes back to the fun issue, is to, be, is to do kind of what I call fly-on-the-wall journalism, which is to, if you can spend enough time with people, just to get them to forget that you're there. And you do that in many ways, one of which is that you sort of try to start to dress like them. And when we were doing the Walter Reed stories, we decided that it would be better not to tell the Army that we were there. We spent a lot of time on Walter Reed, and I didn't dress like this. You know, I had T-shirts and baseball caps and jeans and dirty sneakers and 
no makeup, I hate to admit, and uh, dirty hair, and you know, just I fit in with the, the or I try to fit in with uh, people who, who uh, you know, don't wear suits and ties every day. Um, when I covered the military, which I did for eight years, um, I had my own uniform. I dressed in navy blue every day almost, navy blue shirt and um, jacket and no fancy shoes. And it worked so well during one trip that I took with a general to Indonesia that when uh, we met at the uh, Australian embassy with the defense attache, he, he, he uh, brought me into this room and he triple locked the doors and he said to me, I know who you really are. What would you like to see? And I couldn't figure out what in the world he was talking about, but in a matter of seconds he had unrolled this map, and this was before East Timor was uh, independent, and the Australians did a huge amount of spying there, and he laid out for me all of the Indonesian military-backed militias that were decimating people in, um, in East Timor. And I got really nervous when I figured that he thought I was really with the, with the government. Um, and I stayed long enough just to get a good sense of how things operated and to memorize a couple key details. <laughs> and then I found a way to end the conversation. And I called him up the next day as I was about to leave to remind him that I'd been introduced to him as a Washington Post reporter, and that is what I actually was. And uh, as he was hanging up the phone in his Aussie accent, he was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so it does have its uh, limits. <clears throat> Other than fun, though, there's, there's a great responsibility, I think, that comes with being at the top of your profession. And for journalists, it's a responsibility that is enshrined in the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution sets up a contest between the press and the government. And it gives the media, in fact, it's the only institution that it gives a special protection to. And it's not a protection, it's not a carte blanche. It's, it is a contest, but um, you know, there is no heavy government regulation and no uh, censorship. And um, it did this, obviously, because the framers of the Constitution believed that the role of the press is indispensable and that um, that governments would naturally drift into secrecy and that this wasn't healthy and that pesky members of the media um, had to make sure that that didn't happen and when it did had to try to throw those rocks at the window, see what was going on. Um, the Walter Reed is a, a great example of shining the light in the darkness. The changes that happened after we wrote about the outpatient care there, you know, there are about 70 soldiers who live as inpatients after they come back from being wounded, but 700 who live on the grounds as outpatients. And these people were the ones that were really getting not, um, not well taken care of, forgotten, living in moldy buildings and that sort of thing. It was remarkable to me the kind of reaction that that engendered. And not only did the commander of the post um, force to resign, and the Surgeon General of the Army forced to resign, but the, the Army Secretary um, left, resigned. And, and, but better than that, I don't take any kind of glee in that sort of thing, is huge changes have happened there. They've not only poured resources into Walter Reed into medical care for returning veterans everywhere, but they've, they're trying to change the culture which allowed this cumbersome and inhumane bureaucracy from 
um, taking hold. Um, so the, that's the easy part to talk about because it has a happy ending and people were applauding the post for adding this many resources to this kind of issue. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about though is, is a sort of more difficult subject and that is the one that I won the full Pulitzer for which was um, the C uncovering the CIA's secret prisons. And it touches on my other passion which is national security uh, reporting. And it was very tough because it was controversial. Um, and we picked at it little by little. And we learned in the beginning of the Afghan war, you know, where are they taking their detainees? What are they doing with them? I learned about stress and duress techniques that special operations forces were using. Do those fit in the Geneva Conventions? What are those? Eventually I was led to an instance of an Afghan detainee who was killed by an Afghan prison guard, but under the watch of a CIA officer who was at that prison. And I remember it took me six months to get this story because people don't talk easily about these sort of things. And along the way, I just kept asking myself, why am I obsessed with this person whose name I don't even know to this day? I mean, their family has no power. Their family may not, not even know why he's not come home. Um, he'll never get a hearing in court. But it, it, just, it, it was just something that my gut said, are we doing this? And what, why are we doing this? What, what's this tactic leading to in terms of our strategic goal? You know, when, when we started uh, writing about the renditions, the extraordinary renditions in which um, suspected terrorists are taken by the CIA from one country to another and then kept in secret prisons, we started to get a better picture and eventually three years later with the help of, with the number of journalists around the world, we have a very complete picture about what sort of uh, system was set up in the name of after 9-11 to deal with suspected terrorists. Um, not everyone was happy about this uh, revelations. In fact, the president called our editors in, I was not at that meeting, um, to discuss not running the stories about the secret prisons. They claimed that it would damage national security and our decision was not to name the countries in which those prisons were um, held but to run the story and to say that they were in Eastern European countries. Eastern European countries who had been suffering under communism for so many years and now they were trying to emulate us and live under the rule of law and these prisons were outside of the rule of law and not signed off on by the political leaders of those countries so we thought that was a hugely important story. Um, but the, the angst over the story didn't stop there. I personally was called a traitor by more people than you know, I could ever have imagined. Um, uh, just two weeks ago, a former CIA official went up on Capitol Hill and, per and naming me said that he thought I had endangered his grandchildren with my reports. Um, but this is why I think it's so important. Because unless you ask these really hard questions, you can't figure out whether as a country we're gonna win the war on terror or whether we're even succeeding. These are the tactics that are supposed to get us to a strategy to the end of our, to, to achieve our strategic goal, which is to minimize or defeat terrorism. And so in order to figure out whether you're doing that, you have to pile up the tactics and say, well, what are they leading to? Are we succeeding or are we creating more terrorists? What are the trade-offs? Um, 
and are we on the right path? Uh, and you can't get to those unless you can figure out this very secretive world. And you can't, you can't get to that secretive world unless you somehow engage with the journalistic community because no government is going to delve into it. Uh, and I think this is still journalism's biggest challenge. And the stakes could not be higher. Look what happened when the journalists in the world and in the United States didn't push hard enough to figure out whether there really was WMD in Iraq. That's just one of the consequences of not having an active enough press. Um, I think there's so much to do in this realm, and I think it's, it's very much the hardest work within journalism to do, and that because you are among the few people in the United States and across the world who clearly have the talent and the skill and probably the courage to do some of this work, I think it's perhaps your responsibility when you get to that age to step up and give it a try. And that's my last recruiting uh, pitch for you all.